You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 516, hooray, it's the opening ceremony at the Olympics, Charlie Brooker versus Nikki Campbell, and miserable newspaper columnists getting the mood of the nation all wrong. That's all coming up after Dodgy and staying out for the summer. Great cheery seasonal tune to get us underway. There's a great video for this track on YouTube. It's a bit like the monkeys meet meet um, Dick Dastardly and Muttley. Um, released as a single in 1994, number 38 in the UK, and then number 19 a year later when it was uh, re-released. Dodgy and staying out for the summer. And that's aged surprisingly well, actually. I, I very much appreciate uh, associate it with a peak Britpop. But yes. actually, it's just a cheery summery tune, isn't it? It's the sort of thing which I would be pleased to hear on Radio 2 nowadays. It's, 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 a, it's a cheery piece. I like it. 
Welcome to episode 516 of the Parish Council. I'm Terence Stackham, and she's one of the rare number of people not to have visited outer space this week. It's Juliet <laughs> Harris. I know it clearly seems to be this summer's must-go-to uh, holiday destination, doesn't it, really? I, I'm just sick of all of those silly rich men going into space, yes. really. It's not something that I'm hugely into. Elon Musk saying it gave he wanted to get a sense of perspective, uh, to mm. which some very sensible person on Twitter just said, well, why don't you pop down your local children's ward and uh, hang out with, with with children who are battling cancer? That might be a better sense, uh, perspective, a better use of your time and, dare say, your money, Elon Musk. But anyway, hi, everyone. I'm not going into space and neither should you. <laughs> One other thing I just want to check with you quickly. Have you, mm. you haven't been hanging out in supermarkets this week wearing a Spider-Man costume, have you, by any chance? I haven't. Is there oh, someone that hasn't you. been then? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's not you. Okay. Yeah. There was a viral uh, video this week of uh, someone in a Spider-Man costume going berserk <laughs> in Asda in Clapham Junction. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry to have missed that. I, I, oh, how, I'll send it how, to you later. How unusual that you're more online than me. But anyway, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. No, I can I can very, I mean, I am just wee spider person um, mm. in terms of, you know, I haven't been to a supermarket since March 2020. I've been very fortunate <laughs> to be able to organise online deliveries. And the thought of having to go into a supermarket again, I went through a phase of missing going to our local 24-hour mm. Tesco's at odd times to enjoy the peace. But um, I don't know, maybe I'll never go to a supermarket again. I'm not sure. I might, however, if there's someone dressed as a spider person, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Every year that is an Olympics, Olympic Games year, there are mm. usually stories in the press some months before about how the venues won't be ready in time mm. and how it's all, you know, it's all chaotic. Then it all turns out fine and we get on board, you know, the next four year cycle. This year, of course, the organisers, the athletes and media have all had to try and bring all this together in the time of a worldwide pandemic and leading to some commentators already referring to these Olympics as the joyless games, as there are so many rules and essentially restrictions this year, including a recommendation of no cheering, uh, athletes not eating or mixing together and further advice that no one should undertake um, intimate activities. In <laughs> oh, the, the beds, the beds that are designed to break. Yes, cardboard beds. Yeah, um, the opening ceremony is often a, a, a cheerful starting point at any Olympics. Um, but as if Tokyo 2020 or 2021 could get off to a worse start, the opening ceremony director was sacked two days ago yes. after jokes he made on television in 1998. Uh, they resurfaced. And this was four days after the opening ceremony composer was fired after claims of bullying. So, so Jules, welcome to Tokyo. Uh, did the opening ceremony spark joy for you? Well, it's it's funny this. I, I mean, one day there will be there will be a day where an opening ceremony to anything and particularly to an Olympics won't make me cry just solidly <laughs> throughout. This was not that day. I found this incredibly moving. I I mean, for all of the for all the nonsense around the you know the the the, the, the you know the, the the people that you've just told us about. Mm. Um, it was a very difficult one to judge, wasn't it? To what extent, uh, I think we'll go on to talk later in the podcast, that, that, that sporting events, and particularly the Olympics, mm. always offer people a great sense of joy and escapism, I think. Yes. And, and we perhaps need that more than ever. And for all that... I and lots of people I know that love sport feel very conflicted about whether or not I should even be going ahead in the first place, given that Tokyo was in a state of emergency. Yeah. Um, they had to find a way of balancing off 
you know still acknowledging this is happening and bringing joy but yet also placing it in the wider context in which we find ourselves living at the moment and actually I thought this ceremony did a very good and sometimes quite moving job the opening bit with the athletes on the treadmill well I just went completely I mean when the commentators were talking about you know them them all sort of having to train separately and and when you think about what people you know the, the want to compete I know it's their choice to compete but when you think the sort of sacrifices they make and what they go through that is what's so astonishing and moving about sport the personal stories of everybody involved the woman on the treadmill that then it turned out didn't even qualify for the olympics because her qualifying event was cancelled and they did it off rankings i thought that that was that would that really spoke to me about sort of you know just how unfair this all is as well as how how hard this all is and you know i i didn't watch the whole four you know however many hours it was three and a half hours <laughs> of sort of behemoth but i saw i saw the highlights package that the bbc put together and you know there wasn't I mean there wasn't as much joy as you would usually have in a ceremony I love the fact that all the athletes walked out to a massive compilation of Japanese video game music I thought that was really cute mm. and really a really nice sort of acknowledgement there were some fantastic costumes in the uh, in, in the the athletes I very much enjoyed France stripy t-shirts um <laughs> South Africa's Hawaii sort of floral print thing they had going on um it, it, you know there were some very um jumpy around teams weren't they the US <laughs> were very enthusiastic I thought, I thought Britain were very sensible to only send 22 of their hundreds of athletes out I thought that was very well judged there was lots of enjoyably mismatched flag bearers as well weren't there it seemed to be let's pick a let's pick the shortest person on our team <laughs> yes, and, and the, the person on our team that is seven foot tall mm. and let's send them out together to carry the flag there were some enjoyable visuals for that but I thought the ceremony itself was very moving it was very restrained I thought it I thought it got the tone right um um, the cauldron was lovely with uh, with the sort of you know the, the way they opened up for Naomi Osaka to to, to light and again it was the commentator said it was very it was it was very telling that and very moving that Naomi Osaka who's been very open about some of the the, the struggles she's had mentally in the last year it felt very right that she should be the person that light the torch it, it lit the torches so it sort of spoke to to the the difficulties i think that we've all had uh that i enjoyed andrew cotter and hazel irvin's uh commentary it was but it was very i mean sometimes i you know like all commentary i just wish it wasn't there but there were other times that were very entertaining and i felt they spoke for a nation when there was a particularly wacky interlude involving people dressed up as a tv crew and uh, andrew cotter said oh here's some wackiness now and hazel irvin spoke for all, for us all and she went what is this and then they just mm. cut on to something else I yeah it, I mean it wasn't the glitziest glamorous summary ever but it couldn't be it could never be it was it was operating in a very specific space I thought the light show was just wonderful where they had the the drones for you know mm. sort of making the logo which then became the world I thought that was great so this might not go down in history as you know the most slick ceremony as the most detailed ceremony there was an eeriness that they were doing all of this to, to an empty stadium although the lighting was very clever to make it look mm, like there were people it? in there yeah. but um it, there was an there was an oddness to it but in the odd circumstances i thought the japanese delivered delivered a, a ceremony well as, they, as we kept being told that the, the line that is being parroted this year is an olympics like no other and they they gave us a ceremony that was like no other and yes it doesn't compare to you know britain's 2012 you know the the, the color of rio but it wasn't on those terms it wasn't in that space so for the space in which it was operating i thought the, the the dancer that turned from ash to hope i i just thought it got the tone right and i thought it was very moving and 
it's difficult to know whether this should be happening or not. But as it is happening, it's an incredibly uplifting thing. I love Olympics. I just I I love the idea that, you know, you've got all these stories. And I thought Japan did a good job in difficult circumstances. I watched uh, three quarters of it live on the BBC mm. and it was the BBC coverage that, um, well, let's put it this way. I, I think as a nice cliche to football reports go, they say oh, yes. it, was a, it was a game of two halves. I thought this was a tale of two halves. Mm. I thought the coverage of the first half by the BBC was awful due <laughs> right, to okay. poor decision making at the BBC. Mm. Um, the second half was fine and you, you, you know, due to the same decisions made by the BBC. And I'll explain. The first section... As you as you explained, was a presentation, a performance that drew on yes. the emotion, the emotional aspect of the Olympic Games in a time of pandemic. And now I don't blame Hazel Irvin and Andrew Cotter. I like them both. I blame the BBC producer who decided we needed a full blown yes. lols and bant style commentary to tell us exactly what we could see on the screen, yeah. as if we were kindergarten children under it, un, unable to understand the visual elements being shown parts of the performance were really charming and moving as you say mm. but i felt that any poignancy was yes. demolished by the inane commentary i kept saying just let it run just let, let it, it happen run. yeah absolutely you know, we, we don't need commentary and, and some of the ad libs uh, felt a bit scripted and, and sort of forced humor i did find that a bit awful on the other hand though to, uh, you know mr balance here on the other hand I had no problem with the light-hearted commentary when the countries paraded in because oh, that, 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 that was gen that was genuinely hilarious. In exactly, that you know, was really fun. Absolutely, because it was lovely seeing the combination of excitement and pride amongst yes. the largely young people parading behind their uh, respective countries' flags. I was, but the, the the thing <laughs> I was beginning to um I was going to say I was beginning to flag. Well, British, I mean, it, it, but that bit always goes on for about a million I, years at every yeah, single Olympics. I was beginning to wonder how many countries there are <laughs> in the world. You know, would I remember uh, ever end. Absolutely. I remember a friend of mine texting me um, an hour and a half into the countries coming out during the 2012 Olympic ceremony in, in London, saying to me, they're making these countries up now. These places don't exist. They've gone through the alphabet twice. I enjoyed the, the, the fact that we had the countries in the order of the Japanese alphabet. Yes. So they were in a completely, well, it felt like a random order. Obviously, it wasn't. But it was, it was you know, it was quite nice to literally not know who was coming next. It was, it was, it was great. Yeah, I was just getting to the point where I was wondering whether the, the parading in were going out one end of the stadium and coming, <laughs> coming back, back around the, the other way again. And it was just that point when I when I was really beginning to feel drained when the British gas repairman rang the doorbell and I was saved <laughs> from watching any more countries marching into the Olympic Stadium in Tokyo. Um, so that was um, the Olympic uh, Games opening ceremony on the BBC this week. Yeah, and it was it was a genuinely great opening ceremony. So so well done to Japan for for staging mm. something that was so good in such weird circumstances. Yes. Coming next, if your satire sends someone to bed for two days with depression, <laughs> is it still funny? Um, that's right. After a track from the the London collective Jungle.
thing you've just said about does it spark joy i have to say i find jungle to have been one of the most joyful bands of the last few years i i love their kind of technicolor wonder and this is no exception they're a big summer band for me i, I obviously i love them yes. all year round but they, their music particularly chimes for me in the summer and i i love this i may have picked this previously but it's, it's always one of my big go-to tracks in the summer i i love its kind of cheerfulness and just the way that it kind of shuffles along i think it's great that is heavy california by jungle yeah very talented uh duo multi-instrumentalist and really mm. creative sound i like them too very much um, Charlie Brooker, thought to be the the saviour of modern satire by some. Others may argue that a lucky break writing a television review column for The Guardian has led to a overreach career in television script writing. I would argue for somewhere between the two. Yes. Um, some amusing television reviews and humorous work on TV Go Home and the Need to Know newsletter, plus a smart look into the future, I guess, when he co-wrote Nathan Barley with Chris Morris. All those oh, years I mean, that's, that satire now appears to be some sort of documentary, doesn't yes, it? Yes, really? indeed. It's, it's, it's like reality those, now, yes. Those of us with very long memories will remember um, Charlie Brooker's work as a columnist in a meagre power magazine before he did oh, anything yes. else. That was where he very first started off. Since then, it's arguable um, that there's been rather too much effort in pushing boundaries than writing strong scripts than Nadir being the short-lived 10 o'clock live show on Channel 4, 2011 to 2013. Amazingly, it, it, amazing, it really. It ran for three seasons, but each one shorter than the one before. Um, Nicky Campbell, OBE, award-winning journalist, seemingly a nice sort of bloke. He, he'd bring your bins in for you if you went out for the day. Um, <laughs> That's such a great judgment, and it's, so, it's probably so true, isn't it? And that is... If people in Britain are okay, would they knock on my? Well, if they were okay to live next door to, would they knock on my door to tell me that my headlights were still on in my car in the <laughs> yeah. drive? These kind yeah, of judgments, these Campbell, small acts, yeah. yeah. Also, at times, though, inclined to pomposity and a and a, a certainty that mm. his view is the right one. He's a little. There's, bit, a little oh, there's, there's a there's quite a big partridge vibe to him, isn't there? At yeah, times, he, I he think. can be a little bit overbearing with his social conscience. Mm. I think for some time, Charlie Brooker has taken against Nicky Campbell. <laughs> he really has. BBC journalist saying, I just don't like the man. It's simple. And Brooker called Campbell the Antichrist and continued to have a few pops at him. The outcome was that Nicky Campbell spent two days in bed with depression after another of Brooker's reviews. Um, but Jules, that's all. That's OK, isn't it? That's satire. I mean, it's interesting, this, isn't it? I mean, it's it's like you, I, I find I put Nicky Campbell in the same box as Richard Madeley in that <laughs> I do genuinely really like them, but I find them completely ridiculous at times. And uh, to be fair, Madeley's a bit different in that I, don't, I think he knows how ridiculous he is. I'm not convinced Nicky Campbell has that insight. But having said that, he's spoken very movingly about his depression previously. He mm. appeared on the Fortunately podcast to discuss a book. His wife appeared un, un, unexpectedly and, and discussed it with them. He He's, he's very simple, a simple sort of uh, way in which he expresses it, I think, is good. Um, Charlie, when we say Charlie Brooker's taken against Nicky Campbell, I suppose there's different levels to this, isn't it, really? Yes, it's, you know, it's 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 fine to sort of tease people. I mean, Charlie Brooker um, has dubbed Nicky Campbell the Antichrist, which is quite that's quite high up in terms of, in terms of not liking people. Yeah. Created a montage of his career set to demonic music. Nicky Campbell being very open about how he's suffering from bipolar. I suppose it's it's 
when do you when is a how serious is a joke and when is it taken too far i mean people will probably remember Morecambe and wise's constant criticisms of des o'connor who then appeared on the show and was able to send himself up and this is why i've always been a fan of des o'connor because he spends quite he sits about quite a lot of time laughing at himself rather than rather than anything else and i like people that don't take themselves too seriously and recognize that things are a joke however it is possible for things to go too far and um, a few years ago i'm sorry i haven't a clue on Radio 4 made it sort of known that they would stop joking about Lionel Blair because Humphrey Littleton had spent years reading out sort of terrible innuendos about him, mostly insinuating that he was gay. Um, Lionel Blair isn't gay and his wife found this very, very difficult and eventually yeah. they, they agreed that it had been going on for sort of too long. I guess it's it's you know it's it's to what extent are people allowed to express themselves versus that terrible phrase oh can't you take a joke which mm. you know it's it's and and uh, you know uh, when you're using a sledgehammer to crack a nut that's not always i mean we have to give people the space in which to operate sat, operate satire wise because i think that satire is a really important tool again to stop people in power from taking themselves too seriously i think that's a good thing to have but uh, what when does it when does it when does it stay like that and when does it just turn into um when when is it just going to turn into sort of you know constant abuse yes charlie brooker probably wasn't to know that nikki campbell was was suffering from bipolar but there's got to be a balance between being able to have the freedom to make a joke, but also being able to be kind. And that that thing about we never know what battles people are fighting. Mm. It's I, I think that there there are times when people, particularly self-styled satirists, lose track of that. I mean, part of me thinks, you know, is sort of shocked that jokes about him cause Nicky Campbell to go to bed for two days. Mm. But then part of me thinks, but then having said that, that's that's where Nikki Campbell is. This this idea, and this is a slightly unfortunate turn of phrase, but in law there's something in criminal law called the uh, the thin skull or the eggshell skull principle, which is the idea that if you punch someone or injure someone, and they so, so the, the scenario is you punch, you know, you punch someone who I don't know is winding up in a pub, they fall over and hit their head on the floor. Most people would probably you know might have a sort of a, a facial injuries, but would be okay. But that particular person that you've punched happens to have a particularly thin skull a genetic thing and that in that your action causes them to die or, or mm. to become very seriously ill now the principle is it doesn't matter if the punch that you threw nine out of ten people that you punched in that way would be fine you take your victim as you find them in criminal law and it doesn't and the fact that they might have a very unusual condition that that results in you know that results in in a, in a, a disproportionate amount of damage that doesn't matter. And I think that actually mm. it's a principle that could be applied here. Yes, Charlie Brooker wasn't to know that Nikki Campbell suffers from bipolar depression. And yes, Nikki Campbell is occasionally a bit puffed up and might do well to take himself less seriously. But having said that, if that is how Nikki Campbell reacts and that is linked to Nikki Campbell's illness, then that is a reasonable way for Nikki Campbell to react because that, mm. is, that is how Nikki Campbell is. And perhaps... I, perhaps people need to be a bit more mindful and also perhaps comedians and as I'm sorry haven't I haven't a clue realized perhaps they need to know when a joke needs to stop when it when it stops becoming funny and 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 actually just starts causing damage there are lots of comedians that found and and, and Charlie Brooker's no exception to this but there are lots of other comedians that have found them found found their careers on jokes on the same jokes that just stop being funny after a while and so so I 
I mean, I do believe in free speech, but I also believe in, you know, with, with the power of free speech comes responsibility. And I do wonder if Charlie Brooker went a bit far. I'm really taken by what you say there and the the punch analogy uh, in, as well. I mean, that's I mean, how I, I was. I don't know if that's that's how I was taught yeah. at, at, at law school. I mean, I confess to not being a fan of Brooker in particular. He seems to rely on cruelty and the certainty that his mm. sizable left wing audience will hoot with laughter at any description that mocks an alternative, you know, the, the alternative mm. to the, the sort of left wing views. Um, but I mean, this is, I, you see, I'm in no way an innocent party here in that I wrote extensively uh, for the TV show, also so-called satirical spitting yes. image. And I said over the years that I certainly regret the way that some people were portrayed on our mm. show, particularly when the focus was on people's personal characteristics. Yeah, absolutely. And, but but um, then but then fair play to you for being able to acknowledge that. That at least shows some self-awareness. Yeah, I don't know what's changed over the years. Maybe you just calm down with age. But I, I, I need some convincing that humour that sends its target to bed with depression is worth it for the lols. I mean, I, I do understand it's not so easy writing comedy in the 21st century. We are more woke now. And I, I see that as a very good thing. Um, mm. Although that is mocked, you know, or how woke you are. But I think it's a good thing. It does mean, a, 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 and I think sort of running parallel with what you're saying i just think it does mean a certain particular responsibility for humorists and satirists and that is to um to take people to task yes and to question with humor but i think to do so without merely using insults as a form of mm, comedy absolutely you know, it's not so easy being funny i guess in in mm. 2021 well, perhaps not. And I think there's this excellent article by uh, Lewis Wise in The Telegraph comes up with with three sort of a sort of a three point plan, really, which I think is good. Mm. It basically says, here's a few pointers to make sure your jokes don't come across as bullying. Firstly, don't get too repetitive. It's that which looks vindictive. Secondly, make sure it's funny. People forgive a lot if the quality is good. Just that it's doing third, allow for a bit of revenge. And I, I wasn't familiar with this, but this is rather great. I'm reminded, he says here, the infamous Paul Michelle meme, which sprung up when fans of Beyonce's girl group Destiny's Child started to notice instances where its third and newest member, Michelle Williams, seen sidelined. Hashtag poor Michelle, everyone cried, cackling, even as though they apparently commiserated. Eventually, though, Michelle Williams made her feelings felt. Hashtag poor Michelle, she replied in the tweet. That's not what my accountant said. <laughs> so actually and again that's an example of someone that's able to yeah. you know that has that, that's able to take humor in in good parts so yes if you give people a sort of a and that's what made more common wise work i think actually in that they when they'd have des o'connor on they you know he was allowed on wasn't he to promote his record so it wasn't yeah. like it wasn't like you know they were just slagging him off all the time and then he you know you never saw him and that's what that's what makes sense i think really that 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 is that it can be febrile territory but I think the idea of trying to keep it unrepetitive and, tr and trying not to bully, I think, is is you know, and also to make it funny. And and I think that that you know that that sometimes things stop being funny. I think the best, the one of the best sort of um, masters of this, I think, him and his writing team. Harry Hill seems to find a way to take the Mickey out of TV mm. and yet still remain funny. And I think that's a, a, to mock people on TV. Yet it's done in a way that is not vindictive. And I think that's the key. Mm, I think I think you're you're right. Coming right up, how some British colonists seem to have misread the mood of the nation. 
That's next after a new cover of a Steely Dan track. This is from Lou Hayter. by Steely Dan on the album Gaucho. I really do like this uh, new version and her new album is very good too. This is a track from uh, this new album called Private Sunshine, Lou Hater and Time Out of Mind. I really enjoyed that. I'm a big fan. I'm a fan of the Dan anyway, but mm. I thought that was particularly great. Um, Lou Hater, um, I, I, I liked her a great deal for a long time. She's, she's a very, um, the way that she's sort of... Um, 
just quietly forged a path through things. Mm-hmm. She started off as part of New Young Pony Club, who I was always quite a quite a fan of. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a lovely version, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here for cover versions of Steely Dan. I didn't <laughs> think I would be, and yet somehow I am. Absolutely, and I don't think there's so many of them because I think they, you know, are probably quite difficult to cover. And you know, Steely Dan's sound is so unique. But as as we both agree, she does a splendid job there. Uh, it's a couple of weeks now since England lost a penalty shootout uh, to Italy in the final of Euro. And yes, it feels like six years ago. And, oh, and actually, the penalty God. shootout felt like it went on for six years as well. <laughs> yes. Some people immediately misjudged uh, the public mood. Some morons put their focus on the tone of skin of the players who didn't mm. score their penalties for England and decided to crowbar their racism onto social media. The backlash to that was immediate. Many of the people behind the racist posts were identified and now they face the consequences. Other politicians and political commentators also misjudged the public mood. Some advised Marcus Rashford to concentrate on practising penalties rather than his marvellous work on child poverty and mm. some politicians changed their stance during the tournament as England's fortunes soared upwards. I think generally, it's called jumping on the bandwagon. I it suspect. is indeed. I mean, generally, I think it's fair to summarise that we have, particularly in young people, I think, and I hope, uh, a new wave of sort of mm. love and admiration for anyone in the public eye who takes a stance on social issues. Yes, and, I think you know, that's, that's who right. stand or kneel or whatever against racism, anybody who stands up against it. So it was strange this week, Jules, to find national newspaper columnists going the other way and queuing up to moan on about footballers quietly, it must be said, enjoying a holiday in Greece, and another one whining that there's just too much sport on television. I mean, it completely misjudges the public mood. I think I completely agree with you. And I do get that it is boring when people bang on about sport all the time. There are a lot of people that don't like sport. I don't hugely agree with them, but I do I do get yeah. that, that. I do understand yeah. that. Having said that, we're in different times. We And I think mm. that, that this this Marion McGilvery, I think her name is, in the Daily Mail, are you, is it just me or are you sick of this sporting summer too? I know a lot of people that are actually got really into the sports that are going on without being sporting fans because Mm. it is something that is going on that is not covid that is i mean obviously it has to take you know the covid uh, covid regulations into account but it is nice just to have something sparking joy for a while there was a brilliant piece in the athletic in advance of the of of the final the the uh, euros final basically saying it's okay to be invested in this england team it's okay to be feeling these emotions because it is an outlet for our emotions at the moment and i and i think that this kind of oh well there's too much sport on you know for goodness sake um it's it's really you know it, it it to see people doing these things and i've talked previously about the olympics to see this kind of humor endeavor it's hugely moving and even if you don't like sport guess what quite a lot of people do i mean we watched love island the other week when me and i both hated it and there are lots of people that do watch it and enjoy it i mean i, I have genuine concerns about it as you do but i don't know i just i just get a bit frustrated this idea that and, and there was a very peculiar piece about the sort of although i did have some I, I didn't quite know where this piece in the telegraph was going actually i couldn't quite get what point it was that she was trying to make i found it very confused um sometimes columns are great because you get columnists that you sort of get someone's worldview and sometimes you just get the impression they didn't have anything to write about that week and it's just yes. a, it's just those sort of random sort of sentences um Jane Schilling's piece in the Daily Telegraph 
really weird. I, I don't really know what, but I mean, the headline is an outbreak of acapella is the last thing any holiday needs. Now, I am right with her in that she talks about the despair of people singing happy birthday to you in restaurants. And I do agree with her, her assessment of happy birthday. If a more dispiriting dirge exists in the entire musical repertoire, I can't bring it to mind. I'd rather listen to the Dizeraya any time. They're possibly not performed by the sextet at Sable 17 through Mouthfuls of Tiramisu. And it's I mean, it, it is the happy birthdays. And because it was the song that we had to sing when we washed our hands, as my friend put it, <laughs> birthdays in the future will consist of people singing just shut up and eat the cake, but simply because there is just no, I'm very anti happy birthday as a tune. It is, it's even worse than our national anthem. It's a terrible, terrible, boring dirge. Anyway. Despite that, she was mo- she's moaning about people a cappella singing on on Mykonos. Um, it's um, you know, it's it's this idea of whether or not there should be a ban. The Greek Civil Protection Ministry banned all music in public places on Mykonos. Um, the mayor of Mykonos, um, the most Greek name ever, Konstantinos Koukas. I wonder if he's Greek. Um, said uh, said on Facebook, uh, Mykonos cannot be the only island where music won't be heard. The only thing this would achieve is that visitors will go to another island and he's right this idea of um i mean you know this woman she just talks about sing-alongs and how they become irritating and despairing there i find something so moving about people singing together in public it's Mm. such a and i know that there are health concerns at the moment but just the, the, the the very idea of it is great i love it when people sing, sing spontaneously it's really funny it, it's one of the better sides of yobbish behavior i suppose really I, I there was a great video that circulated around social media a while ago um darkest hour the film about winston churchill there's a scene where he's giving the speech in parliament and they got all these actors that were playing mps sort of 400 of them crammed this is obviously very much pre-covid crammed into a tiny space and in order to warm them up for the scene you know when they had to all be very shouty in parliament they got all of these blokes dressed as mps and they were blokes unfortunately in those days to sing hey jude <laughs> and there's a lovely clip and it's just it's so incongruous of all these all these politicians you know people and politicians crammed into a small space and it's all very atmospheric all very sort of monochrome belting out hey jude there was a lovely video on so another lovely video um Surely FC, who had that very inspiring cup run, posted a video of all of these players, you know, pretty blokey blokes, singing along to someone like you by uh, Adele in their changing room afterwards. And they all had all the notes. They could all sing really well, which you might not necessarily associate with a non-league football team of blokes. And I just, I find big sing-alongs really uplifting. I find that they do spark joy, which we very much need in these times. I know that, you know, it's one of the worst ways that you can, that, you know, you can, you can spread the virus have to be careful and manage that but I, I just find it very joyful and and I, I know that if you've gone out for a quiet evening it is very irritating if people start singing in the background having said that though I went to a restaurant in Brighton years ago. There were lots of cheap Italian restaurants in Brighton in sort of the noughties. There were two warring families and it was very much a golden age, um, particularly if you were a student or a young person where you could, I remember 11, I think 10 of us went out for an Italian meal once. Most of us had three courses and it cost like 85 quid for all of us or something insane. It was it was great. And we went to this restaurant in which four different tables had birthdays and mm-hmm. everyone got there. They could have just done a generalised happy birthday for 
the whole restaurant. They didn't. Everyone got their own happy birthday. There was a very cheery chef that rattled the big, they had one of those big things full of cutlery that you could pick up and he rattled it along for everyone. And it was DJ Cutlery as he was known after that. And it was great. It was just really, really fun. And and I, I just, you know, for all that I share Jane Shilling's issues with happy birthday as a, as a musical piece, um, yeah, I, I, I missed, I miss that. I miss, I miss this kind of sort of communal singing. And you know, obviously, I'm not into people racist songs and racist charts, football, no. yobby behaviour, that sort of thing. But I just think it is a joyful thing, and I do think it's missing the point if you're not into it. I'm sorry, that's just how I feel. Uh, Jane Schilling in the Telegraph, in particular, her miserable piece about this it was all oh, based well, around what, down, what happened yeah. was that. Uh, Mason Mount, Jack Grealish, Luke Shaw and Carl Walker went on holiday together with their respective partners. They weren't on a lads tour or anything. They went into a small bar in Mykonos and were just quietly keeping themselves to themselves. The bar owner recognised them and put on um, Sweet Caroline on the Mm. PA. And (laughs) good naturedly and lightheartedly, the chaps just sang along to it, not in a riotous kind of jumping on the tables way, just with Mm. big grins and singing along and on that basis alone Jane Schilling writes you know about you know, the end of civilization as we know it because of these footballers um it seems incredible that in an age where more or less all televisions have access to a hundred channels and those who subscribe to cable or satellite tv have nearly a thousand channels on offer mm. that a columnist would run an entire piece about how a television channel, one television channel, is showing the Olympic Games when there are 700 not showing the Olympic Games Quite. or indeed any form of sport at all. And I think either either Marion McGilvery or, or, or of, in this case, the Daily Mail, is still mm. watching a television built in 1960 and can only show two <laughs> channels. Or, and surely not, she's deliberately written a charmless, mildly provocative column that she doesn't actually believe in mm. with a desperate hope that it will encourage enough clicks and replies of outrage that her pressurised editor will smile approvingly of her reader engagement stats. Um, surely it's not as cynical as that, he asks rhetorically. I hope so. I hope. I mean, I don't know what's worse, really. They're both pretty dispiriting, aren't they, those theories? Thanks very much for listening this week. Lovely to have you there. Yes, thanks, as always. It's nice to know that it isn't just us in our respective sort of spare bedrooms, that there are people with us. That is grand. Yeah. You may wish to hear more from Juliet, and <laughs> here's how. I mean, the word "may" is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. I feel, but uh, yeah, it, it, in the in the uh, unlikely circumstance, you'd like to hear a bit more of me. You do get more records around me, which I think makes me easier to take. Um, I do a show on Sunday evenings called Smooth Sailing on my Mixler channel, which is mixlr.com forward slash Juliet hyphen Harris, or just search for my name on the Mixer site. And um, there's a show rule button. You can catch up with previous shows live seven to nine on a Sunday evening, doing yacht rock, easy listening, classic pop, just all that kind of you know. Uh, relaxing but uplifting tunes that's that's what we're here for now the track we're playing out with jules i seem to remember mostly in my recollection as a television advertisement yes and like many tunes in the 90s that perhaps wouldn't have had a wider audience otherwise whoever was doing the music for and, and the general sort of campaign for levi's in the 1990s mm. probably wasn't being paid enough yes that we did have we did have the old babylon zoo space man here and there the <laughs> most and that was the most misleading use of music in an advert ever because every 
everyone bought it thinking it was this really up-tempo sort of number. That is the beginning and the end. There is a very long, and I have to say quite dirty, whilst we're on that subject, um, sort of a, a section in the middle. But there are some good, really enjoyably wacky records. Nanny in Manhattan by Lilith, um, which I still have, was a great tune that, that, that got an airing on that. Before You Leave by Pepe Deluxe with the, tw- the twisted seams. And so lots of their advertising worked very, very well. But I think this was perhaps the pick. It was for a campaign that was called Mermaids that featured a chap underwater wearing Levi's jeans uh, with two mermaids. It was completely underwater. It was a very resting visual sort of thing. And it fitted so well. I I wonder whether or not they wrote it around this song or whether they just had a a sheer piece of dumb luck that they managed to find this song for that advert because the two fit together so well. Whenever I hear this tune, I can shut my eyes and see the advert, which is, of course, the power of good advertising. Um, And I think this is just a beautiful, beautiful tune. Great for summer vibes. I just, I, I could listen to this all day and occasionally do. Um, this is um, uh, uh, to, to nick the uh, nick the first line of the song. This is Smoke City, and this could be underwater love. This must be underwater love. The way I feel it slipping all over me. This must be underwater love. The way I feel it. O que que é esse amor d'água? Deve sentir muito parecido a esse amor This is it, on the water love It is so deep, so beautifully liquid Esse amor com paixão Tudo, 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 tudo
Listening to a Parish Council production.